Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for this holy Shabbat, for this time that you've given us to gather together as Mishpacha and to worship in your midst. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word spoken, your heart received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, I pray that you will breathe new life into our midst, into our congregation, uh, through what you are saying here today, that you will open our hearts to receive from you. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. Amen. So this week we're in Parsha Matot Masay, which is the last two parshot of, uh, of the, the book of Numbers, from Numbers 30, verse 2, through the end of 36. Uh, if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 31. We're going to begin with verse 1. It's interesting because uh, I, most of you know, uh, and if you don't know, you do now, um, I don't have notes up here. Like, I may have a few little things, like, marked, like a little note uh, on uh, a reference point in my Bible of something that I want to reference and read real quick. Uh, and I may have a little line jotted down somewhere on my iPad. Uh, but I don't use notes. I don't have a manuscript. And most of that is because I, anybody that's having a conversation with me knows I'm too scatterbrained. Uh, I get lost in the paper and start fidgeting with it and playing with it and what have you. But What's really interesting is watching how God speaks each and every week, not whether he's speaking through me to you, uh, I, I pray that he is, I hope he is, uh, but, but he's speaking to me every week as he's preparing me for the message. And so uh, the, the, the fact that I don't have a manuscript or anything like that uh, definitely doesn't mean I don't put time into preparation because I do. There's hours on hours that I'm reading and studying and digging through stuff all week long. But this week in particular was really interesting. I had no clue exactly what I was going to talk about today, which isn't uncommon. I generally have no clue about anything. But uh, in, in particular, it's, it's not uncommon that I not have a clear idea of what the message is going to be on Saturday morning until Thursday or Friday, and there's been plenty of times that I've gotten here, here, gotten here on Saturdays getting the service ready, getting things ready for the service, and went, all right, God, pretty good time for you to show up. We're like three hours out till I'm supposed to say something, give me, and, uh, and the message come. Um, but the, uh, the, this week was one of the, the rare circumstances that not only has there been a word building on my heart all week from this Parsha, but in particular, it seems like almost every conversation I've had this week uh, had something to do with this topic and what we're going to deal with today, which is really interesting, uh, I, at least for me. We talked about it some in Torah on Tap last week. I've talked about it at Soul Caffeine quite a few times as customers and friends have asked questions and people I've worked with and things, and this has come up, uh, and, and it was, it's just been a really interesting thing to see how this all kind of compiled uh, and what the Lord, uh, I believe, has to say this morning as we look through this Parsha. But uh, let's go ahead and dive right into it, though, from Numbers 31, beginning with verse 1. It says, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for B'nai Israel. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. First, let's pause there. Could you imagine being Moses? God's like, hey, one last fight, and then you're dying. If I were Moses, I'd be like, all right, guys, listen. You've, you've already won, right? God's given you the victory, but take your time. 
You don't have to rush this thing, all right? It's okay. God's got to take your time. I want a little more. But he says, says go and, and, and fight, and then you'll be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Mobilize some of your men for battle. They will go out against Midian to carry out Adonai's vengeance on Midian. Send into the battle 1,000 men from each of the tribes of Israel. Uh, so what's really interesting here, there, there's several things. What's really interesting is the number of Israelites sent into battle. There's 1,000 from each tribe, which if you can do the math really quick, it's 12,000 people. Anybody remember how many people died because of the Midianites and the Moabites? 24,000. So the Midianites and Moabites come in and they lead Israel astray via temptation and 24,000 Israelites die right then and there in a plague. And then when we come forward to God taking his vengeance against the Midianites, he specifically says take 1,000 people from each tribe. Uh, so it's half as many people as died are going into battle. So because of the sins of the nation of Israel, 24,000 people died. But it only took 12,000 people, half that number, to be able to bring vengeance uh, to, to Midian for what they had led Israel astray in. What's uh, also interesting is the word Midian itself. Uh, I don't know if you guys really dig in. If you don't, you need to. Dig into the Hebrew when you're reading through this. Dig into the Greek when you're in the Bechadashah and the Aramaic. It's really interesting to see God... Not only does God know what he's doing, not only does he know what he's trying to say and what he's portraying to us, and it's in plain language, uh, but he, unless you're reading Paul's writings, even Peter says, dude's complicated. Um, but, but as we're reading through, what we recognize is not only is there plain, easy to understand uh, uh, wording here in, in uh, the Hebrew, and particularly as we're reading through the English translations, there's been great detail and effort and work into making it easy to understand. But when we look at the actual words that are used, it's intentional what God is doing and what he's saying and the message is being relayed. Uh, for instance, and we're not going to deal with it today, but just something for you to go home and study is look at all of the stages that Israel camps in uh, later on in this book where it goes, or later on in this parsha where it goes through everywhere they've been. There's a message about the gospel. There's a message in the journeys of Israel and the things that have happened and the message of repentance itself just in the names of the locations that they've been in because God's teaching them lessons in each and every place. And sometimes like each of us, we got to double back around on some of those lessons and you'll notice these names come up again several times. Sometimes we got to double down because we didn't catch it the first time. But here in particular, this word Midian, and it's interesting that this is the people group that the enemy uses to tempt Israel uh, and to, to be an enemy of Israel long term. But the, the Hebrew word Midian literally means strife. All right? And when we talk about division and, and disunity, strife, discord, this is generally the root of division, right? We divide in our, our friends. You know, we break relationship with friends because we have a discord. We have a, a strife between us. We break relationships in our community and our congregations because of strife and discord. And we uh, let the divisiveness or disunity breed in the midst of this. And I found this little kind of, this little note from uh, one of the, the, the old um, Chabad Rebbe's that I thought was really interesting. And he says, um, the Hebrew word Midian means strife. Midian is the essence of divisiveness, which is the root of all evil. Thus, our sages speak of groundless hatred as the greatest of evils. In truth, all strife is groundless hatred. So the so-called grounds that people and nations have for hating and destroying each other are but the various facades of the divisive eye of Midian, the ego that bellies the common source and goal of humanity. Uh, and views the very existence of others as an encroachment upon the self. 
on the cosmic level, God is the ultimate oneness. And everything godly in our world bears the stamp of his unity. All evil derives from the distortion of this oneness by the veil of divisiveness in which God shrouds his creation. So before the people of Israel could conquer these seven nations that inhabited the land of Canaan, which represent the seven negative traits of the heart, they first had to destroy Midian, which is the source and cause. Uh, this is also why the destruction of, the Mid of Midian could be achieved only under the leadership of Moses who embodied the traits of utter self-abnegation -ab uh, and thus harmony and truth. So as we look at the, the Midianites, the enemy uses them to bring division and disunity, right? Through the strife of the Midianite temptation, he uses uh, Midian to bring division and disunity among Israel. We go back to the garden, uh, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve in the garden, and what do we see? We see that the enemy comes in and he uses temptation to create strife and division between God's creation and the Creator Himself. And we end up being separated from the presence of God that we were created to be in, and we end up being separated from the one whose image and likeness were created in. And as we move forward through the narrative of the development of the people of Israel, we see strife and division, strife and division, strife and division over and over and over again. Uh, Esau and uh, Ishmael, or I'm sorry, uh, 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 Isaac and Ishmael, Esau and Jacob, uh, we see it with David and Saul. And Saul. We see it with uh, all of these people over and over and over and over again. We see this idea of division and disunity beginning to pull its head up and cause issues among the nation of Israel and ultimately bringing a, attempting to bring a hindrance to what is the ultimate message or narrative of the gospel of Messiah Yeshua, the salvation of not only the Jewish people, but the salvation for the entire world. Verse 48, skipping forward, says, Then the officers over the units of the army, this is after they've come back from the battle with 12,000 men, they were able to bring victory. Then the officers over the units of the army, the commanders of thousands and hundreds, came to Moses. They said to him, Your servants have counted the heads of the men of war under our command, and not one is missing. So you've got 12,000 men that go out to war, and they're going up against an army that is far greater than they are an army that is much more vastly numbered than those that are coming from Israel. They're going up against an army that has experience in fighting, that has experience in territorial takeovers, that has experience in wiping out civilizations. And yet they're going against them with 12,000 men that have probably never really had a fight in their life. Like this at least. They probably fought with their siblings and their friends and whatever, but they've probably never had a fight like this in their life. And they go into war, they go into battle, and God provides a miraculous victory. And one that not only are they victorious, but they're victorious with 12,000 men against this vast army. And not a single Israelite dies in battle. It's very rare and very uncommon for there to be a means of war in which not a single death occurs on the victor's side. And yet here we see not a single person dies out of these 12,000 that go to war. Why? Because they were in unity. Not only were they in unity, who is it that the word tells us led them into battle? Pinchas, Phineas. Jewish tradition says the reason why Pinchas was the one that led them into battle was because he was the one that started the mitzvah of ending Midian's temptation on Israel and he should be the one to finish Midian's temptation on Israel in a very literal sense by wiping out Midian. And so he goes in and he leads them to battle. Well, Pinchas has this, this zeal for the Lord and he's got this zeal that is like, it, it, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, 
spreads. It's, it's like a, a, a virus, I use the word loosely. It's like a virus that just continues to grow and grow and grow, and it brings more onto the, the same plane as he is so that they can go into war in unity, prepared to see what God is going to do through them and for them. They don't go into battle. There's 12,000 men going against a huge army. They don't go into battle thinking that they've got it all under control. They don't go into battle thinking that this is all easy and there's nothing to worry about and there's no fears to have and no concerns to have before them, but they go into battle knowing that they serve a God who is greater than any enemy that the enemy can put before them. They go into battle knowing that God has said vengeance is his and they are going to bring his vengeance. And not just vengeance, but the Hebrew there is actually used twice, which anytime a Hebrew word is used twice side by side, that means an even greater concept of. So it's his vengeance of vengeance, which is a foreshadowing of what we know will happen in the final battle and, and everything that will happen in the end times with bringing about uh, the, the ultimate reality of God's kingdom here on earth. And so we have this beautiful image of what's happening there and everything going on. But immediately afterwards, right? This is the end of chapter 31 that we read about the, the, the 12,000 coming back and not a single man dying. And immediately afterwards, at the beginning of 32, the very first thing that we read, again, is about strife, division, and disunity. Didn't take them very long, right? Remember that they're already at the Jordan River, which means they're already in the time period that the book of Deuteronomy is covering that it's being given, right? Deuteronomy is about two, three weeks, maybe two months or so of Israel's 40-year journey. And so they're already there. Likely at this point in time, Moses is already recounting the words that are in Deuteronomy to the nation of Israel. Uh, and in this brief period of time, they go from fighting a victorious battle that is entirely miraculous because they were united in God's purpose to immediately afterwards two and a half tribes saying, kind of like being on our own right so verse one the sons of reuben and gad had a very large had very large herds and flocks and they saw that the territory of jazar and gilead uh were ideal for livestock so the sons of reuben and gad came and said to moses eleazar the cohen and the princes of the community saying uh atarot dibon jazer uh nimrah hashbon uh, Eliali, uh, Sabam, Nebo, and Beon, the territories Adonai conquered before the community of Israel are, sustain are suitable for livestock and your servants have livestock. Then they said, if we have found favor in your eyes, let this territory be given to your servants as a possession. Don't make us cross the Jordan. The whole reason the nation of Israel was brought out of Egypt was to cross the Jordan was to go into the promised land. The whole reason that Avino Avram, our father Abraham, was brought out of Ur of Chaldees was to cross the Jordan and to go into the promised land. The whole reason that the nation of Israel developed was to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. The whole reason we are called Hebrews from the Hebrew word ever is because the word ever means to cross over, one who crossed over. We were intended for the sole purpose of crossing over the Jordan River because the Jordan River is a barrier, a symbolic barrier between the outside world and the reality of God's promises. And we were called to leave the world, the fallen world, the world of temptation, the world of strife, the world of brokenness behind and to walk into the promises of God. And here we have two and a half tribes, ultimately two and a half tribes of the nation of Israel that approach Moses and say, you know what? Looks pretty good over here. 
Um, we got a bunch of herds, and the grass looks pretty good over here, and um, there's no fighting because it's already been done. We don't really have to fight over there if we just stay here. And, uh, and immediately after they bring this up, Moses goes off the rails, right? You read the passage, he goes off the rails. Do you not remember what happened? We've just spent 40 years because your forefathers were idiots and pulled the same trick. And you think we should do this? You're going to make all of us spend another 40 years? I think really Moses is going, all right, we won Midian. It's time for me to die. I definitely, I wanted a little more time. I don't want 40 more years. Like, let's not make this happen. So he goes off the rails and he starts to, to remind them of what they went through. And so their rebuttal isn't, oh, you know what? You're right. We totally messed up and repent, right? They never actually repented of rejecting God's promises and of bringing division and disunity in the nation of Israel. Instead, the response is, I'll tell you what, we will build uh, sheep pens and we will build farms and we'll build houses for our children and our wives and then we'll go with our brothers into the promised land and fight with them until they get their inheritance and then we'll come back over here and we'll stay over on this side and what's really interesting is that the two and a half tribes on the wrong side of the Jordan they were the first two first parts of Israel to actually walk away from the Lord they were the first ones to give over to idolatry because they stayed outside of the promises of God. They stayed in the midst of strife and temptation uh, rather than walking into the reality of what God had in store for them. They never walked fully and truly in repentance, but they stayed divided from their brothers. And if you pay attention, the number one tribe, the first one mentioned here is who? The tribe of Reuben. And who is the tribe of Reuben? Reuben was the firstborn of Israel's sons. Reuben was the one who should have had the firstborn right had he not rejected it because of sin and so the firstborn rights and inheritance went on to the next actually went to two more down to Levi and to Judah and so here Reuben's saying look I don't want that right his descendants the sins of the fathers upon generation and generation of follow we have Reuben who ultimately through his actions rejects his firstborn right rejects the promises that are due him and here are his descendants the tribe of Reuben rejecting the full nature of the promise of God in order to stay comfortable and relaxed here where the territory is already won. We go to Psalm chapter 133, beginning with verse 1. A song of ascent of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Right out the gate, David says, unity is what it's all about. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, Aaron's beard coming down on the collar of his robes, talking about the anointing of Aaron into the priesthood. So unity is like an anointing into the priesthood is the imagery there. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there Adonai commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And if David's words, Melech the Bee, King David's words weren't enough, let's go forward to John chapter 17. Many of you have heard me talk about this passage before. You may have even referenced it yourself. John 17, this is Yeshua speaking. This isn't just Yeshua speaking. As a matter of fact, if you have a red letter Bible, it's all in red. Uh, this isn't just Yeshua speaking. This is Yeshua pouring his heart out in prayer before his heavenly Father in advance of what he knows is ultimately, ultimately going to be his death here on earth as a human. Verse 20 of chapter 17, he says, I pray not on behalf of these only, speaking of his disciples that were there with him, but also for those 
who believe in me through their message, speaking of you and me and everyone that will come after us and everyone that went before us that are believers because of the narrative of the gospel and the words of our forefathers in faith that went before us, that they all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, so also may they be one with us. And this is the kicker. So the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given to me and I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. So I pose a question to you. The body of Messiah today is as fragmented and divided as could ever be imagined. Thousands of denominations exist. And these denominations exist because of strife and division. Thousands of denominations exist. They all have their own beliefs and interpretations and traditions and, and, and so on and so forth. And they're divided. Granted, there's a couple of really key issues that we all agree upon. Primarily the salvation and the blood of the Lamb, the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh that we all agree upon. But we divide over the things that really don't matter. And we allow strife and division to exist. And we allow for us to be disunified and broken. So when the body of Messiah, who's supposed to be a light to the world, who's supposed to carry the message of Messiah to all the world around us, to Jew and non-Jew alike, and the world sees that we are divided, based off of Yeshua's prayer in John 17, who is it they see in us? Because it's not God. They don't see the one that sent Yeshua. Yeshua says the way that they will see him in us is when we are united, when we are one. But we're broken. The body of Messiah as a whole is broken. And we continue to build upon this brokenness instead of building upon oneness, instead of building upon unity in Messiah, and instead of allowing the world to truly see who we are supposed to be revealing to them, if they don't see Yeshua in us because of our division, then who is it they really see? It's the one who is the father of lies and temptation. It's the one who brings about strife and division. The one who loves the idea of sowing discord and disunity in the body of Messiah. Because he knows as long as we are divided, we're of no threat to him. We're of no threat to his kingdom. Ephesians 4, verse 1 and I really wish that the body of Messiah would wake up to these words. I wish we would take it to heart and live it out in a real way. Therefore I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called, with complete humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love. Notice he doesn't say getting along all the time in love. He says putting up with one another because Paul's no idiot. He knows we are. And because we are, we're going to continue to rub people the wrong way. We're going to continue to make people upset. We're going to continue to step on toes. He says, putting up with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Ruach and the bond of Shalom. Do we do this? Is this the reality of the body of Messiah today? Do we truly live these words that Paul encourages us with in the body of Messiah today? He goes on, for there is one body and one ruach. There's not 
the Baptist body, and the Southern Baptist body, and the Primitive Baptist body. There's not the Assemblies of God body. There's not the Messianic Jewish body. There's not the Catholic body. There's not the Presbyterian body. There's not the Church of God body. There is one body and one Ruach, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one immersion, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is no greater resource that we have available to us than unity in Messiah. And yet, unfortunately, we allow the enemy to break us apart. We go back to the early parts, latter parts of the first century, the early parts of the second century, and we begin to see a division, disunity between Jewish believers and Jewish non-believers. We begin to see a a division and disunity between Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers. We begin to see this division that ultimately builds up into there's this kind of Jewish arm of the body Messiah and there's this kind of Gentile arm of the body of Messiah and we end up developing into the church and now what we know is Messianic Judaism and we're on two entirely different tracks. We preach the same message. We believe in the same uh, Messiah. We believe in the same Holy Spirit. We believe in the same God but for whatever reason we, we went off this way. And as if that wasn't bad enough, those divisions then divided down even more. And over the next 1,700 years, the body of Messiah, the church is, as it's known today, the church breaks apart and fragments and divides and breaks apart even more and more and more. And now we get so tired of dividing that we started dividing by calling ourselves non-denominations. We don't like that anymore, so we're going to become something else. We're just not going to name it. But we're going to name it something that means it doesn't have a name. That's what we're going to do. And we're just going to keep doing that over and over and over again. And we keep breaking down more and more and more. Even within Messianic Judaism, there's the International Alliance of Messianic Congregations, the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, uh, International Alliance of Messianic Congregations and Synagogues, and the Union of, I missed the letter there, the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, uh, and there's several others out there as well. And on the peripheral of Messianic Judaism, we got all the granola, all the fruits and nuts that wander around that have all kinds of weird stuff too. But we just keep breaking down and breaking down and breaking down further and further and further and further until ultimately I don't know that the world truly sees what Yeshua says the world should see in us because we're divided, because the body is broken. There is one bride of Messiah, but yet there's thousands of denominations. Last year for Shavuot, many of you were there for it. Last year for Shavuot, we called, it happened that Shavuot and Pentecost were on the same day. And there were a bunch of things that were prophetic realities leading up to it that had happened, uh, our anniversaries of prophetic realities that were happening right beforehand. And so we went to a bunch of churches in the area and we said, hey, how about we try something different this year? How about we set aside all this stuff that makes us broken, all the stuff that divides us, all the things that we disagree on? How about we come together and what we agree on, and what we truly believe together. How about we come together in Messiah and the Ruach? We just try and experiment and worship as you know, one body, Ephesians 6, and see what happens. And it was one of the most powerful services I've ever experienced in my life. And it's not because it was something that birthed out of CMC, and it's not something that was because we were involved or anything. It's because God moved when we came together in unity 
God made himself known in a powerful way because we came together united as one. And many of you in this room came up to me afterwards and said people walked up to you that weren't part of CMC that were there that said things like, this was the most powerful, the most spirit-filled service I have ever been in my life. And I know one of you who remain nameless, but you're going to smile as soon as I say this. One of you came to us and said, somebody said that to you and you went, I don't know how anybody can live not experiencing this every week. We do this every week at CMC and the power of God is so real. How can people live that, not experience that all the time? But there's something about the reality of unity. As David said in Psalm 133, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And although sometimes we are going to get on each other's nerves, anybody that's had a sibling will know it's going to happen. Although we may get on each other's nerves, although some of you weirdos may be Boston Red Sox fans, get on my nerves. No. Although we may get on each other's nerves, the reality is we must put up with each other in love. Sometimes that really is a, dude, I just got to suck up my pride and put up with you. And sometimes that's a, you know what, I'm really excited you're here in spite of the fact that sometimes I have to suck up my pride and put up with you. But we have to put up with each other in love. We have to come together united as one, as he says here in, in Ephesians 6, with complete humility, with gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Ruach and the bond of Shalom. We've spent 2,000 years doing the exact opposite of these words. We have not made, not every effort, we've not made any effort to keep the unity of the Ruach in the bond of Shalom. We have made zero effort in the body of Messiah to do this. Things are going to get a lot harder. And it's going to happen really fast, whether we like it or not. And it will become more evident soon that unity is the only way that we will survive. And even more important than survival is unity is the only way that the world around us will truly see the reality of the presence of God in our lives. It starts with our families. It starts with our local congregations, our local communities. And it grows from there. It's got to be something that boils over from uh, our congregation or other congregations that have the same yearning. It's got to be something that we model and we live out and it boils over so that the rest of the body of Messiah will want it and want to walk in it and want to experience it. That doesn't mean by any means that we got to shut down all of our operations and come together in one big congregation, which by the way would be really awesome if we did doesn't mean that that's what we have to do. It doesn't even mean that we have to give up the things that we strongly believe in, that we disagree with Joe Schmo down the street. But what it does mean is we've got to put those things aside so that we can be united in him. We've got to stop talking against each other. We've got to stop bad-mouthing each other. We've got to stop, stop backstabbing each other. We've got to stop literally word-vomiting about every other believer out there. We've got to stop the gossip and the slander. We've got to start walking in love, humbly and gently, with patience, putting up with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Ruach and the bond of Shalom. Avarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, 
I praise you because this is a call that you have been giving to your people for way more than 2,000 years. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and the fact that you created us to be one with you, Lord. And yet we allow for temptation, for strife, for Midian to get involved in our life and to mix things up. And so, Lord, right now, I cry out on behalf of the body of Messiah. And Father, I pray that, that you begin to ignite this call to repentance throughout the body of Messiah. But I cry out right now, Lord, asking for your forgiveness. First for me and for our community, for any, uh, any addition to strife and division, disunity that we have been a part of, that we have caused, that we have uh, brought into the world around us. Father, I ask for your forgiveness for the body of Messiah as a whole, for the fact that we have allowed the enemy to do what he wants and have play with us and mess with us so that we become divided and disunified and ultimately destroy the image and likeness of God in our lives and the message of Messiah that should flow through us. And Father, I cry out right now that you bring us together united as one in a way that we could have never imagined, that we will experience the truth of your power, of your might, so the world will see you first. And know that you are God. And that they will know that your salvation is true and eternal. That your love is ever growing. That your love is ever reaching. That you want nothing more than to draw your creation back into yourself. And that you want us all to step out of the ways of the world and to cross over that spiritual Jordan River into the truth of the fullness of your promises. Father, forgive us for standing back on the wrong side of the river and saying, things look all right over here. We should be all right. We should be able to make it here. But Father, draw us into the fullness of your promises. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen and Amen.